You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 237, The Siege of Charleston. It's been a while since we discussed the war in the South. We last left them in episode 234, when a combined French and American force attempted to recapture Savannah, Georgia, from the British outposts there. The British managed to hold out, and the French sailed for New England. Continental General Benjamin Lincoln was stuck with a relatively small southern army with which he hoped to protect South Carolina and hopefully find a way to recapture Georgia for the Americans. General Lincoln, of course, was well aware that the British had their eyes on Charleston, South Carolina. They had already attempted a half-hearted attack on the city that almost succeeded in taking it. A big part of Lincoln's time was spent building and reinforcing the defenses in and around Charleston, which was seen as the key to holding the state of South Carolina. Lincoln never wanted the Southern Command and had already tried to resign several times. He faced the same frustrations that his predecessors in commanding the Southern Continental Army had also faced. The Southern governors refused to support the Continental Army to provide them with necessary supplies or to give them command authority over state militia. The Southern colonies also categorically refused to raise much-needed recruits from the enslaved population, which in South Carolina made up a majority of the population. Not only that, many white South Carolinians could not afford to leave their farms for fear that their slaves would escape to the British or perhaps even rise up in rebellion on their own. General Lincoln hoped that Washington would send more Continental soldiers from the North. He wrote to Washington that, quote, We remain unsupported by troops, unsupplied with many essential articles, and uncovered with works. And what adds to the unhappiness is the little prospect that our affairs will speedily be in a better channel. Washington, however, was watching his own northern army dwindle during the winter at Morristown and had nothing but unfulfilled promises of new recruits. Congress did approve some additional support for Charleston after the failed attack on Savannah. It sent three frigates to help supplement the harbor defenses and a couple of thousand soldiers from Virginia and North Carolina. But with the Northern Army strapped for men as well, many of the other states resented having to send assistance to South Carolina. The state had consistently refused to provide soldiers to the Northern states in their times of distress, and refused to turn out its people in significant numbers, even for its own defense. It was only the fact that the loss of South Carolina would also prevent any hope of retaking Georgia and would probably mean the loss of North Carolina and would even probably put Virginia at risk 
that convinced those states to the north that they needed to assist South Carolina, even if the people of that state did not seem willing to make much sacrifice to defend themselves. Massachusetts delegate James Lovell captured the sentiment of many in Congress when he wrote, quote, The state of South Carolina have thought we neglected them. We know they neglected themselves. They will not draft to fill up their battalions. They will not raise black regiments. They will not put their militia when in camp under continental rules. However, he noted with frustration, we must exert ourselves for them in every way. To add to General Lincoln's woes, a smallpox epidemic broke out in Charleston. Slave owners refused to allow their valuable property to work on defenses within the city for fear that they might catch the disease and die, thus depriving their masters of their value. Lincoln corresponded with the Spanish governor in Cuba over the idea of raiding the British colonial capital at St. Augustine in Florida in hopes of forcing the British to focus on the defensive rather than new offensive goals. These negotiations, however, came to nothing. Political leaders in South Carolina would not allow General Lincoln to deploy valuable forces or ships to send on an expedition outside of the state. Also, the Spanish were still under orders not to work directly with the Americans. General Lincoln's primary hope in defending Charleston relied on the fact that the size of the British garrison at Savannah was nowhere near large enough to capture Charleston. The real fear for the Americans was that the British would send a larger force from elsewhere, either to reinforce the garrison at Savannah or to simply launch a larger attack against Charleston from another location. The fear of that larger attack was very well founded. As I discussed back in episode 240, the British were very much considering a larger all-out assault on South Carolina. The British success in capturing Savannah, Georgia, and the hope that a much larger Loyalist population existed in the southern colonies to turn out to support the Crown if a British army established a presence, led British military planners to think that they did have a pretty good chance of retaking the southern colonies with a relatively small force of regulars. The British commander in America, General Henry Clinton, had been planning for an invasion of Charleston for nearly two years. General Clinton's first foray into this war had been at the head of an invasion fleet in 1776 when he tried to take Charleston and failed. He was unable to land his army and the fleet and was pounded by Fort Sullivan, later called Fort Moultrie, until they were forced to withdraw then heading up to New York to participate in the invasion of New York under General Howe. For more on that, see episode 96. Clinton was mortified by his inability to take Charleston in 1776. He spent years obsessively writing about it and blaming others. He feared for the longest time that it would end his military career. So, capturing Charleston was a personal obsession and one that he absolutely could not fail at a second time. General Clinton would lead the invasion force personally, bringing with him his top general, Charles Cornwallis, and all of the best officers and soldiers that he still commanded in America. He had abandoned Newport, Rhode Island a few months earlier in order to consolidate his forces. He would leave a relatively small force in New York City under the command of Hessian General 
William von Nipphausen. Clinton had left New York on December 26, 1779, with more than 8,000 soldiers. These included several regiments of mounted cavalry and a large contingent of artillery. A fleet of over 90 ships carried his force southward, accompanied by another 14 naval warships, six of which were large ships of the line, all commanded by Admiral Marriott Arbuthnot, the new naval commander in America, and with crews totaling another nearly 5,000 sailors. Leaving little to chance, Clinton was bringing an overwhelming force to take the city. The voyage south was not an easy one. On December 27th, the first full day at sea, a storm struck the fleet and battered the ships for four days. A couple of days later, the winds began blowing to the northeast and grew stronger as the day wore on. Not only was the wind blowing the fleet in the wrong direction, the winds toppled masts and inflicted other damage. Rain, hail, and snow pelted the ships as soldiers and sailors endured brutal cold and seasickness brought on by the stormy ocean. Many of the horses that had been stored aboard ship suffered broken legs from being thrown about and had to be tossed overboard. My thoughts go out to the soldiers assigned to carry the 700-pound horse corpse up to the deck while the ship was rocking violently, then through pelting snow and hail to throw the horse overboard while avoiding plunging into the sea themselves. Then repeat that task many more times. The joys of army life, I guess. After several weeks of brutal storms, the fleet was scattered all over the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, one ship full of Hessians ended up being blown all the way to England, where it put into port for repairs. By the end of January 1780, the fleet managed to gather only about two-thirds of its ships off the coast of Florida, having well overshot their target in South Carolina. There, the ships got caught in the Gulf Stream, and got pulled further out to sea. Finally, by February 1st, after more than a month at sea, the fleet spotted the lighthouse at Tybee Island and dropped anchor off the Georgia coast near Savannah. There, the fleet reunited with another 18 ships that had been split off from the fleet during the storms. At a council of war held aboard ship, some officers recommended getting off the ships while they could and marching from Savannah to Charleston overland. Clinton thought it best to sail up using inland waterways instead. A majority of officers strongly objected. Clinton ended up taking their advice to remain at sea. With the weather improved, Clinton would try his luck on the water a bit longer. He did drop off part of his force in Savannah. Colonel Bannister Tarleton was tasked with taking his dismounted cavalry to find new horses, since all of his had died during the voyage. Also leaving the fleet were 1,400 infantry soldiers under Brigadier General James Patterson. His mission was to march toward Augusta as a feint, in hopes that some of the Continentals or militia that might be defending Charleston could be drawn inland toward northern Georgia to challenge the British offensive there. Among Patterson's brigade was Major Patrick Ferguson, who commanded a regiment of Loyalists who had been recruited in the New York area. After pausing in Georgia for just over a week, on February 9th, the fleet departed Savannah, 
Heading north up the coast, they reached Trench's Island, known today as Hilton Head, that night. Two days later, British forces landed on John's Island, just south of Charleston. For those unfamiliar, the southern approach to Charleston is a mess of islands, swamps, and waterways, even more so in the 18th century than it is today. Moving ships through this region was fraught with danger of being caught on a sandbar or otherwise getting hopelessly stuck. Admiral Arbuthnot gave responsibility for the landing to a young captain named George Keith Elphinstone. Captain Elphinstone came from an old Scottish family. His father was a lord. Two of his older brothers were British officers. Elphinstone followed the path of a third brother by joining the Navy at age 15 in time to see combat in America near the end of the French and Indian War. He spent his career sailing all over the world, including a trip to China for the East India Company. Elphinstone knew the Carolina coast well and assured his superiors that he could get the army ashore without difficulty. The captain managed to guide the fleet into the outer harbor and offload the army unopposed by any rebel forces. The quick debarkation was critical since another storm was approaching. Fortunately for the British, they managed to get the men ashore before the storm hit that evening. Generals Clinton and Cornwallis personally landed with their soldiers and set about organizing the approach to Charleston. Clinton had left a portion of his army in Savannah, so he only had about 6,000 soldiers with him by this time. The British Army, under General Prevost, had occupied this same area a few months earlier, but had abandoned it just prior to the Siege of Savannah. This time, the British were back, and in far greater numbers. One of the best accounts we have of the British approach on Charleston comes from Captain Johann Ewald, a Hessian commander whose detailed journal paints an eloquent picture of the British attack. Ewald's Jaegers marched with a larger division commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Webster. The column marched out on February 14th, struggling through the swampy terrain in an attempt to reach Stono Ferry. At one point, the British column stumbled out of the woods to come face to face with what they thought was an ambush. The column saw a fortified village just on the other side of the river with armed Patriot soldiers. Ewald noted later that the Americans could have cut his column to pieces, since they were already within rifle range, were not formed in a line of battle, and had no way of charging the enemy due to the river. Fortunately for the British, it was not an ambush. The Patriots defending the area were just as surprised at the presence of the enemy as the British were. Colonel Webster ordered his column to about-face and marched out of rifle range, while the stunned defenders simply sat and observed, with no one firing. Ewald then returned to the enemy with one other officer, waving a white handkerchief. He approached the enemy, saying that he recognized them as part of Pulaski's legion, and asked about a man who he knew was a member of the legion. In fact, this was a ruse. Ewald wanted to get a better look at the defenses and to see if the enemy had boats that might be captured in order to carry the British upriver. The two officers conversed with the enemy and were permitted to return to their lines. An American officer even politely warned them to be careful as the swamps they were marching through had alligators as large as 16 feet. That night, the Americans retreated. 
the British were able to march to Stono on James Island unopposed. In their new position, General Clinton's forces were directly across the river from Charleston. They could see the enemy defenses, but they were not in a position to make any sort of advance on them across the water. The British forces moved slowly but deliberately. Although they had begun their landing in early February, they moved cautiously through the swamps and tributaries below Charleston. General Clinton spent days building up fortifications at Stono Ferry in preparation for his next move forward. Although the enemy did not seem ready to attack in force, sending out patrols to gain intelligence or to seize slaves or livestock was fraught with danger as British patrols fell under ambush. By March 1st, Britain had secured all of James Island, but still was not quite ready to begin the siege. Admiral Arbuthnot failed to bring his ships over the sandbar into Charleston Harbor, fearing that his fleet would be subject to attack and unable to escape at low tide. On March 10th, General Cornwallis began crossing his army across the water onto the mainland, fearing an American attack at any time. That attack never came. The British Navy even managed to send some supply ships up Stono Creek to provide the advancing army with much-needed food and supplies. The British put captured slaves to work as laborers, building fortifications opposite those of the enemy in Charleston. British engineers then mounted artillery to shell any American ships that attempted to use the waterway between the British and the Americans, and later to use those cannon to shell American fortifications directly. But rather than attacking the Americans in Charleston directly from this point, the British moved northward to the west of Charleston with an eye towards surrounding the city. On March 22nd, General Alexander Leslie led a force of mostly Hessian Jaegers toward two nearby plantations, Middleton Place and Drayton Hall. There, the British came under American artillery fire, but rather than charge the lines, Leslie had Hessian Captain Ewald take a group of about 50 Jaegers further upriver, cross through a difficult swamp, and attack the American line from the rear. The Americans withdrew in good order, resulting in the Hessians having only a minor firefight with the American rear guard. The British continued to move forward. They met with a few rifle shots now and then, but the soldiers seemed more concerned with the alligators, snakes, and relentless mosquitoes that seemed to pose much more threat than any human enemies. The bulk of the Continental Army and militia remained inside Charleston, awaiting the inevitable attack, but not coming out to confront the British in the swamps. Although the Americans had built up impressive defenses at Ashley Ferry on the Ashley River, the British managed to sail a small fleet of flatboats right past them at night without a shot fired. British light infantry and Hessian Jaegers continued moving around the perimeter of Charleston, capturing key plantations and occasionally skirmishing with American riflemen. By April 1st, the British were within 800 yards of the main American lines at Charleston. The British Navy, though, had still not entered the harbor. The American naval commander, Commodore Abraham Whipple, decided that his small fleet of frigates, the Providence, the Boston, the Queen of France, and the Ranger, and a few smaller sloops, were no match for the British men of war. The entire American fleet had only 112 guns, 
fewer than two British ships of the line. Commodore Whipple opted to scuttle most of his ships inside the harbor, creating barriers for the British fleet, and moved his cannons to the land defenses around Charleston. The suicide of the American fleet was enough to convince British Admiral Arbuthnot to enter the harbor. On April 8th, the British fleet sailed past Fort Moultrie, taking only minor damage from the fort's cannons. It had been more than three months since the British had left New York to begin their campaign. It had taken 50 days to move the British the last 30 miles to get into position. They had yet to fight a major battle. General Clinton moved slowly and cautiously to get his men into position where they could batter the American defenses relentlessly and compel a surrender. By mid-April, Clinton was ready to begin this new phase of the siege. Given the superiority of British armaments, the Americans would be forced to retreat, surrender, or die. In any of those scenarios, General Clinton would finally take Charleston, erasing what he saw as the greatest blemish on his military record. Next week, the fall of Charleston. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Knox Press which recently released Battle Maps of the American Revolution in cooperation with the American Battlefield Trust. I also want to thank Brenda Richmond and Eleanor Feet for one-time gifts via PayPal. Yes, Eleanor, I do hope to make it to the Kennett Square Occupation Day this fall. Also, David Booz, who sent his thanks via Venmo. Now, this episode was late. A few weeks ago, my son graduated from college. Shortly after attending the event with several thousand other friends and family, we all contracted COVID. Fortunately, the symptoms were relatively light, but they did keep me in bed for quite some time and left my voice a bit hoarse. But we are finally reaching the British capture of Charleston in the spring of 1780. And this kind of marks the beginning of the end for the British. This is the campaign that ends in Yorktown, Virginia, a year and a half later. It's no accident that General Clinton selected Charleston as the only major military target during his time as commander of British forces in America. As I mentioned in the main show, Clinton's first command 
during this war involved an effort to capture Charleston in 1776. He met up with General Cornwallis, who had just sailed from England. The generals were in a rush to capture the city. Even the plan just to capture Charleston was somewhat unplanned. Initially, the British in 1776 had hoped to meet up with a large contingent of loyalists and retake all of the Carolinas in a matter of months before going to join General Howe for the invasion of New York. The Patriot defeat of the Loyalists at Moores Creek Bridge quickly led the British regulars to the conclusion that simply showing up with a fleet of regulars was not going to cause the rebels to shirk away in fear. It was then that Clinton decided that the limited objective of capturing Sullivan's Island in Charleston Harbor was all they could hope for. When even that modest goal failed after South Carolina militia managed to fend off the attack at Fort Moultrie, Clinton had to slink back to New York in failure. In 1776, of course, Clinton had several things working against him, not the least of which was a very limited time frame before he had to get back to New York. It also just seemed that he had a great deal of bad luck. But his failure to take Charleston in 1776 galled General Clinton for years. He brings it up constantly in his correspondence, always trying to justify what happened. Charleston, for Clinton, was kind of like New York was for George Washington, or maybe to use a more modern example, the Philippines for General MacArthur. It was a conspicuous failure that needed to be rectified for the sake of his reputation. Clinton used all of his experience to take Charleston by the book in this second attempt in 1780. He moved his forces slowly and cautiously, making efforts to flank and surround the enemy rather than engaging in a direct assault, which could turn out very badly. He took his time and didn't rush things. Once Charleston was secured, Clinton was then happy to dump the rest of the campaign onto General Cornwallis while Clinton returned to New York. I also introduced another officer who would become notorious in the South, Colonel Bannister Tarleton. Now, Tarleton is already well known for his aggressive tactics around Philadelphia and New York by this time. He was with the cavalry that captured General Charles Lee in late 1776. But the Southern Campaign is where Tarleton would really build his military reputation, and we'll discuss that, of course, in future episodes. But Tarleton would become hated in America, but highly respected in Britain. He would eventually rise to the rank of full general and was even considered for command of the Peninsula Campaign during the Napoleonic Wars, the command that instead went to the Duke of Wellington. Tarleton also went on to a long career in Parliament, where he was an outspoken supporter of slavery and the slave trade. My book recommendation this week is Partisans and Redcoats, The Southern Conflict That Turned the Tide of the American Revolution, by Walter Edgar. This is a pretty short book, less than 150 pages, not counting notes and index, but it gives a pretty good coverage of the fall of Charleston and the first few months of the campaign in the Carolinas. The author, Walter Edgar, was a history professor at the University of South Carolina when this book was published in 2001. He's since retired. If you want a good, concise overview of the British campaign to secure South Carolina in 1780, you'll want to get a copy of Partisans and Redcoats. It certainly won't set you back much. 
Used hardcover copies are selling for under $2 on Amazon. You can also borrow the book for free on archive.org. My online recommendation this week is, well, it's a rerun, but it's well worth it. I'm recommending the website carolana.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-A-N-A dot com. It does an extremely thorough job of covering all the battles and skirmishes that took place in the Carolinas during the American Revolution. If you want details on anything that took place in the state during the war, this is a great place to start. So once again, carolana.com. My question this week asks, why did the half king abandon Washington at Fort Necessity? This question goes way back to the beginning of this podcast, something I covered in episode five. A warrior by the name of Tana Creason was a Native American known as the Half King who was with Washington in 1754 when Washington attacked the French in what is today western Pennsylvania. The title of Half King had to do with his role as a leader for the Iroquois over local tribes in the Ohio Valley. According to Washington, his force captured a group of French soldiers who had left Fort Duquesne to do reconnaissance. Washington had feared they were going to attack him unless he ambushed them first. He later learned that the French only hoped to make contact and have a parley. Washington's combined force ambushed the French, but after they surrendered, Tana Creason, the half-king, killed the French commander, Lieutenant Jumonville, with a tomahawk. The slaughter was an act of war that would eventually lead to the Seven Years' War. After the attack, Washington wanted to attack Fort Duquesne at the site of modern-day Pittsburgh. Tana Creason attempted to rally the local natives, but they refused. They saw assaulting a military garrison with a strong fort with only a few men and light arms as suicide. Most of the native warriors left before the French counterattacked and killed all of them. Eventually, Washington asked Tana Creason to help defend the small fort that he dubbed Fort Necessity against the expected French counterattack. Tana Creason looked at Fort Necessity, saw the defenses as entirely ineffective, and had no desire to be massacred during this French counterattack, so he just took his family and left. Tana Creason was right. Washington's fort was poorly positioned and poorly defended. The French had no trouble taking it. The safest choice, however, does not always result in the best outcome. George Washington was captured, even though he had been willing to fight against all odds, and he soon returned home safely to Virginia and continued on to have a much more successful military and political career. Tana Creason, who fled for his own safety and that of his family into what is today central Pennsylvania, ended up dying anyway within a few months from an illness. But before he died, someone asked Tana Creason why he killed the captured French soldier. The half-king said that it was in revenge that French soldiers had, quote, killed, boiled, and eaten his father, and that he wanted revenge. During this time, cannibalism of prisoners captured in war was a common practice among some of the tribes that fought for the French during this period. They also asked Tana Creason why he had ditched Washington at Fort Necessity. The Indian warrior responded that the, quote, French acted as great cowards and the English as fools, that he, meaning the half-king, had carried off his wife and children, 
so did other Indians before the battle begun, because Colonel Washington would never listen to them, but was always driving them to fight by his directions. In other words, he just didn't trust Washington's leadership. If you have a question you would like me to answer on the podcast, please email me. And the best way to get my email is to sign up for my mailing list, for which there are links on my blog and website. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at AMREF Podcast or through my Facebook group or on Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution Podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.